0: Hello, welcome to LamnaForms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band LamnaForms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today I am joined by musician and writer Ivan Belchich. Ivan is the vocalist and drum programmer for Cosmogear a black metal band he formed with guitarist Xander Chang while living in Shanghai. When he isn't writing his own music, Ivan also writes about other up-and-coming metal bands for the blog Invisible Oranges, which is where I first met him. I was delighted to have Ivan on to talk about his experience in the Chinese heavy music scene, his early influences growing up in New Jersey, his dual life as both a musician and a music blogger, and more. But before I get to the interview, I'd like you to know that I just put out an album called You Can't Do This Alone. It's a remix album I made with six collaborators that mixes drone, trip hop, trap metal, and down tempo, as well as much more. I think it came out great, and I'm really proud of the work my friends put in, so I'd love it if you could check it out. Now, on to my interview with Yvonne. I was just listening to your remix album for the okay. last Cosmo Gear record and I don't know it was, it was kind of cool hearing those songs in like such drastically different forms I feel like we're like remix album buddies like metal artists doing the, the remix album thing so it's cool to hear like your version of that kind of thing. Yeah
1: I think it's like we talked about the other week I think it's a fantastic exercise for any band to do both in terms of learning to be okay with giving up complete control over something you made which is something you have to learn how to do anyway when you release it right mm-hmm. um, it's out of your hands people will react to it how they will but the thrill of seeing what someone else attaches to and resonates with and pulls out of what you made and then takes it in a whole new direction that has nothing to do with you at all you're just the raw building block i find that so fascinating and thrilling every single time. And I wish more bands would do this. I'm really glad you are. I'm looking forward to hearing it. So I think it's super cool.
0: You mentioned that the process of like learning how to deal with like working with others and sort of releasing creative control. Is that something that you had trouble with early on making music? Is that something you've gotten better with over time?
1: Uh, It never bothered me, but I mean it's it's a it's a reaction you see all the time right mm-hmm. so it is a thing that exists I think it exists both as the apprehension before a work is released and it also exists in the feelings people have to process after you know maybe something isn't perceived in the way that they thought it might be
0: Mhm has that ever happened to you with your music, like people have like, like wildly different feelings about it than you would have expected?
1: Well, I mean, no matter what you make, everyone's not going to love it, right? So of course Mm -hmm. we all get panned from time to time. I think one of the coolest ways that this manifests though, is when in a review or even just like in a conversation, someone will draw a parallel between your thing and something you've never heard before. So they might be Mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, you know, this section is, is really calling to mind this band and for you that could be a totally new band to check out but it's just cool how things filter like maybe a band you were listening to was a fan of that band and you never encountered that before and then it all kind of drips down i've talked a lot with langdon about this how this is a this is a primary duty of a good and responsible music critic is to contextualize these releases in ways that the artist might not be aware of but that still exist
0: Mm. yeah so that kind of clues into one of the big things that I wanted to talk about is your sort of dual life as someone who both like makes music and writes about it. Because I, I feel like there's often this kind of contentious uh, or perce- like the perception of a contentious relationship between the press and the critics and the people making the music. So the fact that you kind of stand in both worlds, I think, grants you this really cool you know ability to see both sides of the coin, you know? Uh-huh. We first met kind of on the the writer side of things. You know, I remember like my introduction to your music was is, is something that I think about a lot cuz it's it's really funny. You know, I we were working together at Invisible Oranges and I ended up posting about your band without knowing that it was you. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is cool because it's always nice to hear something kind of like fresh without too much like personal association to it and to like hear the music for for what it is. So I guess like the, the the question I'm sort of stumbling towards here <laughs> okay. is like when you're talking about like planning things in that historical context, what historical context do you see your music in and how is that different than the context that maybe other people have seen it in?
1: Okay, that's not the question I thought you were leading towards, but I'll answer it. The name drops I usually give when, you know, because everyone will be like, well, what are your influences? And so I will point to Deaf Heaven and Kralis. and mm-hmm. I always get well. I don't, I don't hear that, but I mean that's maybe it's not an aping process, right? It's just these are the these are the two bands that for me triggered my fascination with black metal. I didn't come up with early metal growing up. When I was a teenager, I was obsessed with like Dream Theater and Symphony X. Like I went through my like Ozzy Metallica, Pantera intro stages when I was like 12. I had a cool uncle, Uncle Frank. He took me to OzFest. He bought me the records. But the first and second wave black metal was going on in another world. I wasn't part of that world. I was obsessed with Mike Portnoy and everything that those guys were doing, which mm-hmm. we've talked about. You know this. Yeah So <laughs> it wasn't until those two bands came around that i really got hit hard by let's say like that ultimate cathartic you know transcendence of blast beat trims mm. and wailing and uh it floored me it was like oh my god i i, I want to be part of this i want to do this in some way so i had a band at the time that was like more like tech brutal death and i kept trying to Push more, like, more blasties, more trends. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, so th- those are the two bands. There's one of our songs, I always forget which one, I think it's Thalassic Lunacy. Uh, when we wrote that, that was me telling Xander the intro of uh, Wretched Wisdom by Kralis is so dope, like, please steal it and write me one. Just, like, give me it. Give me one that's that's our one of that. So that's where that, that song came from.
0: Mm-hmm. And what are the sort of bands that critics or reviewers or audience members have compared you to?
1: Oh man, at this point, I don't even, I don't even know. So I don't even want to hazard any guesses, but <laughs> I, I'm sure it's bands that members of those bands really like.
0: Totally. Yeah. That, that kind of is like one of the more interesting moments in American metal that, because it's interesting that you, you pinpointed Kralis who are like, a bunch of like new york art music guys basically yeah. but the first and, record
1: was like pretty straightforward
0: yeah it's i mean it, it knowing where they went with it it yeah. definitely feels like more conventional but like i remember when that record dropped hearing it and being like what the fuck is this exactly like, how, you know it i was i definitely had like a mayhem and like emperor phase in high school so i was like used to the norwegian style of black metal and then hearing like this totally different take on it from, you know, basically my backyard mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time, it was like, you know, revelatory. And I think the same thing with Death Heaven, you know, they, they're coming from like such a different perspective, right? And like added this whole other and, you know people can obviously say that like Alcest or the other like the French sort of shoegaze black metal bands were doing it before them you could compare them to Envy uh, the, like the Japanese like Screamo mm-hmm. band but I think like when Def Heaven put all those things together and presented it with like this radical new like aesthetic I think opened the doors for a lot of people and so it's yeah, interesting
1: they blew it up I would say mm-hmm. like they they certainly weren't the first but I've said this before. They put this black gaze post metal sound on the map as a, you know, a significant movement that a lot of people are now paying attention to.
0: Having started there, have you gone back and listened to a lot more of the like the second wave or you know, more traditional black metal stuff?
1: Definitely. Um, and to, to address your earlier question, now I remember we got second wave black metal all the time, which to me feels great because, you know, there's a lot of good stuff there, as I now know. And mm-hmm. so now one of my, I would say my favorite black metal record is Ulver's first, uh, Bergtat. Mm-hmm. Because you listen to that and you can immediately hear where Death Heaven are coming from. So that was kind of my like big hallelujah uh, moment, you know, like a a come to Jesus of I'm obsessed with this band. This is where they got it from. Now I'm like drinking from the source.
0: Let's scroll back a bit to those early influences and those early moments playing music. You grew up in New Jersey, right?
1: Yeah. So I was right across the bridge from you.
0: Mm -hmm. And when did you start playing drums?
1: I started playing drums when I was around eight, like seven or eight.
0: Mm. This is like taking lessons or yeah, yeah. self-taught?
1: No. Uh, so I, I was in music earlier. My parents enrolled me in a music preschool. So like since four, I was getting formal music instruction. We moved to a new town when I was five and there was a piano teacher on my block. So my mom signed me up with her and she was lovely. And I learned a lot of good theory. But piano just didn't click. You know, practicing wasn't thrilling. I mean, still to this day, I think if you're gonna start a kid in music, piano is the best. You have the visual layout, you can easily see how notes relate to each other. You know, it's abstract on a guitar, but on a piano, you can count one, two, three. That's a third, right? Mm -hmm. But it just wasn't clicking. So a couple of years into piano, I was like, listen, you know, it's just, this is just not working for me. So, uh, my parents were like, well, okay, you can stop piano, but you got to do something else. And I feel like that was like a big famous last words moment for them because I said, how about drums? <laughs> 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 you know, and then they, they'd they committed. So they had to be like, all right. So they were like, well, we're going to get you a set. It was the Pearl four and five piece. Like everybody's starter drum kit. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get you this. You got to practice every single day and like really commit, you know, because drums aren't, aren't cheap things. So yeah, that was it. I signed up. I had lessons with uh, an amazing jazz and stage drummer from New Jersey named Larry Silverman, who is still active. I don't know if you will have a chance to go see something he does after all this is over, but remember, Larry Silverman, he's super good. Larry Silverman. All right. And he also happened to be the band director in my town's high school. And so after like middle school, I was figuring out which high school to go to the biggest reason I chose to go to my town's public high school was his music program.
0: And so why do you think you chose drums?
1: I I can't even remember back that far. I mean, it might've just been like in my eight-year-old brain, what is the antithesis of piano? Mm -hmm. Whereas like, you know, piano is, at least in my three years of playing, it was very, refined you got to be like diligent you got to sit there with your poise you know i'm doing the pose people listening won't (laughs) see it but i am you know drums are cool right they're the they're the coolest i didn't know it then but everybody plays guitar so drummers are high in demand so like good choice me so I, i think it was just that it was sort of like what is the radical opposite of piano and i i happened on drums
0: did you start playing in bands outside of school as well like when did you start like messing around with your own music
1: i had some friends in middle school uh who were really good on guitar and bass so we always played together in middle school and continuing in high school and we all got into like the super proggy stuff together Mm -hmm. so i think a big part of my motivation to become a good drummer was because we were playing like paradigm shift and metropolis and shit and we're like 14 and 15 so i was like i need to pull this off right right and it, it didn't help that the the kid i was playing guitar with a dude named phil huang i don't know if he still plays was a disgusting guitar player especially like for our age so he's like well look at me blah, 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 blah. i can do it you know why can't you <laughs> <laughs>
0: So you're peer pressured into getting good at shredding, basically.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but you know, so worth it because what a better way to learn. So every week I'm getting jazz drum instruction from Mr. Silverman. And then with my friends, I'm playing gonzo prog rock.
0: Given that those are both like pretty like academically lauded forms of playing drums, did you pursue like music as you're in college or what? how far did you want to take it back then?
1: I didn't. So... My formal music instruction ended when I went to college. Mm-hmm. I brought my drums. And I had a band at school, but it was just, you know, for fun.
0: What did you end up studying instead?
1: My major was East Asian Studies in our International Studies Department. I learned uh-huh. Japanese for two years, and then I moved to China because I'm good at planning. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, so that's the other kind of like one of the other big things that i wanted to talk about is the the fact that you've been in you know the music scene in three different continents now why did you get interested in east asian studies to begin with and then why the the move to china like where do you think that came from uh okay so
1: the the reason i picked my major was had nothing to do with where my life actually went i thought when I was entering college that I wanted to go into some sort of business-related field, which is, you know, far from what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, everyone majors in, like, econ, right? All the MBA candidates are these, like, econ bros. So I thought, well, there's a lot happening in, in China and Japan economically. Maybe I'll major in that, and that'll kind of give me a cool competitive advantage later on. So I quickly learned that I had zero interest in becoming this sort of business person, but I still loved the major that I declared. And I declared really early, like early sophomore year. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was fascinating. I, all the professors were really cool. So I stuck with it.
0: And then why the move?
1: So that was uh, because during my junior year, I did a semester abroad. I went to Trinidad and we had some of our other friends who went to Shanghai and me. I went to Trinidad with these two two friends who are already like my close friends, and then you know, some other students. And you know, over the course of those months we all got really close. But so we had some other friends who did their semester abroad in Shanghai, and they were telling us, you know, bring all these rave reviews. Shanghai is dynamic. It is growing insanely rapidly. Everyone is doing everything, tons of opportunities, coolest place, futuristic city of the world. So us three said, well, when we graduate, if nobody has anything lined up, let's just go there. So we did that.
0: And what was your first impressions when you first moved?
1: Uh, I loved it. I mean, what it takes a a real cool place, right, to make New York City feel like it's not the coolest city. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So... It was incredible. I mean, I was there for almost nine years. So it, it's a fascinating place. And now now that I'm married and my wife is from there, and her parents are there. So I have both nostalgic and life ties as well as familial ties to it as well.
0: How quickly did you get involved in the music scene there?
1: Uh, super fast. I had a friend, one of the friends who studied abroad there, one of his friends from study abroad moved to Shanghai and he was the same age as me. So we had both graduated and moved to Shanghai. Uh, so he put me in touch with this guy, whose name is JC, and he had been getting a band together with some of his friends. And so then I joined that band as the singer, not, not on drums.
0: Is that something that you were doing beforehand?
1: Never, <laughs> but I always wanted to because, I mean, I think you can, you can probably speak to this too from your experience. Drumming is certainly a thrill, but I always thought I'm, I'm missing out on that direct crowd engagement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You're sitting usually in the back, walled off by this fortress of instruments in front of you, and you're stationary, so everything that your bandmates are doing in front of you, between you and the audience, you don't get to have that same direct interplay with them
0: mm-hmm. you're
1: fueling it right you're like the steam engine but you're not you're not uh indirectly engaging so much so I'd always been curious to see what that experience was like and like I don't play guitar very well so I had to be the frontman.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah I mean I I totally relate I think like I still feel like the there's an interesting like change in the dynamic, certainly like being kind of like exposed to the audience up front compared to like having this like tank that you're kind of sitting behind that like kind of like diffuses a lot of stage fright. I don't know if that's something that you've ever felt.
1: absolutely. So during the course of this band, this band was called Moon Tyrant. Every single show without fail, I puked before we went on stage. There was never a Moon Tyrant show that I did not vomit for. (laughs) <laughs> I never got over it. As soon as the show started, I would be fine, right? And I had I had long hair for a lot of our band. And even that is a shield. You can mm-hmm. just put it in front of your face. And then I shaved my head. And that was a whole new level of stage fright to deal with. Because even my little fake wall is gone.
0: Were you like playing a lot of shows back in the States too?
1: No. I mean, I had a band in college. And we would just play like I was in a fraternity with the the guitar player so we would play like our frat party sometimes my drums were in the basement of the house we we won our school's battle of the bands one year so we got to open spring festival that was like our big thing and uh we played like one show at a a local venue it was you know how some some concert halls will have like the side venue where like the small local super local opener will play before like the big show so we, we mm-hmm. were like that band for, for one show. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was Rusted Root. Remember them?
0: Rusted Root. Oh, yeah. Uh, They're like
1: a kind of hippie-ish. I'm hesitant to say new agey because of your previous interview, but <laughs> <laughs> a little bit.
0: <laughs> sure. Same same world, generally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you you kind of like dove right into the deep end playing more shows and going to the front of the stage after being behind it. Is that... Like, I don't know if you've, did you ever feel like you kind of like got over that stage fright or is that still something that you deal with? Uh, Well, it wasn't until
1: I had another band where I was the singer. So uh, while Moon Tyrant was going on, I formed another band with a friend of mine, this dude Nichols, who was in a band called Raid Mo Danger Club. And he was a bassist. So that band was just me and him, drums and bass, and we both sang. So then I was back on drums. And then Moon Tyrant had uh, ended... And uh, because one of the guys moved. The Shanghai music scene was like this. It's a very transient city. Everyone's always mm-hmm. coming and going. So there's, if a band is around for like two years, that's monstrous, you know? So you could never really count on something staying for all that long. But anyways, uh, when I formed that metal band that I mentioned before about wanting to like put in the black metal... I didn't have any clean vocals in that band with Moon And it, it was kind of a blend of like growls and cleans. Mm-hmm. And I was never afraid with that band. So then I thought maybe I was just insecure about my clean singing voice. And that's what made me so, so scared. Because once I was in like full beast mode, I was never afraid.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like harsh vocals are their own kind of shield. Yeah, from that kind of vulnerability as well. I mean, obviously, they're Sick. Like I love harsh vocals. That's not a problem. But I, I remember for me, at least there was this moment where, I mean, you've heard the last album that I put out. There's only like two parts with harsh vocals on the whole record. Yeah. Uh, Cause I, I felt a, a similar kind of thing of being like, I feel like I'm hiding something or I feel like I'm putting up this wall that I don't necessarily like want to be there. But it's also like musically appropriate to, Wait, to scream. So is
1: that you singing on it? Because I looked in the credits and you have like a bunch of other vocalists.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm doing the majority of the vocals on on Sisyphean. The, I had the no others-
1: idea. I just thought it was these <laughs> other guys, and you were like songwriting and playing the drums. Okay, wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that's really awesome.
0: Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it it makes sense that like kind of adopting the persona of or. Putting on more of the like intensity of harsh vocals kind of reduces that uh, sense of naked vulnerability. Even though I think harsh vocals also have this kind of intense vulnerability to them as well, because you're pushing your voice so hard. I
1: think it's because harsh vocals are more of a, a skill or a tool, whereas your voice is. I mean, obviously, you can take singing lessons, and you know, a real singer will tell you that it's as much of a trainable skill, but. I I felt so naked when it's just my voice with no cover. Whereas with, with growling and screaming, you know, that's a skill anyone can acquire. It's a, right. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a technique. You just, you learn how to do it. Your muscles remember. I don't feel like it's as much of my real core as much as like a, I don't know, you know, like a, a tool again, to just, to use the same.
0: Are you also like the primary lyricist for all of your projects?
1: Most of the time, not always, but I mean, mm-hmm. certainly no.
0: What, how did you first start getting into that? Like, What, are, what were your, some of your initial influences in terms of writing?
1: Well, I wrote, I, I wrote some songs in college. I bought a guitar, just like a little acoustic guitar, and I got huge into the Mountain Goats my two favorite lyricists certainly would be John Darneal, The Mountain Goats, and then John K. Mm-hmm. Sampson of The Weaker Thans.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: In terms of both, like, word choice, storytelling ability, efficiency, certainly, mm-hmm. like, they're not flowery writers, but it's everything, every single word in there is, is carrying a lot of weight
0: very different than than metal writers certainly that's interesting is like did you try and apply that same kind of like approach to writing heavy lyrics or did you try to like switch up your style
1: honestly i look at metal lyrics often as an afterthought is just to have something to say i think the metal vocalist is primarily almost a rhythm instrument you're a texture Mm -hmm whatever you're saying is secondary most of the time people will have to do extra work to find out what you're saying it's not like when you're listening to a singer songwriter they're communicating directly to you you're going to have to mm-hmm. consult the lyrics oh okay that's what this song is about that's not to discount it, that metal lyrics can be significant of course they are usually but uh, like ha- just as often as not for me it's like I have this I have the phrasing I want I know the type of delivery I want. I just need to now find a sequence of words that fits that syllabic pattern and like has the vowel sounds I'm looking for.
0: Given that you were kind of inspired by such like writerly songwriters, were you also writing at that same time? Like doing the sort of coverage of music? How did you get into that?
1: So I did a bit of that in Shanghai. I was writing for a couple of blogs informally actually the the reason I got started writing for Invisible Oranges is because I was trying to promote our our record. So we had we put out our first single while we were working on everything else, just you know test the waters a little bit and Invisible Oranges had always been one of my favorite sites to read. I had that one and no clean singing were like my go-to's. so when it mm-hmm. came time to try to get coverage those are my goals it's like if i can get on there like i'm happy so when i was submitting around i i sent a pitch for our music to like you know editors at or whatever it was at the time maybe directly to you and then i noticed there was a little section that said are you interested in writing for us we're welcoming contributions so i was like well all right let's let's try that (laughs) and like that was what uh you bid on first so then i joined io in that way so The one downside is that now my music can't be covered on this site that I really like, but on the other side, I'm part of it in a totally different way.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you feel like it still kind of achieves that goal of bringing more attention to the music too, to have your writing out there in the metal world as well? Uh, I think so. Uh,
1: On the other hand, I always laugh when people are talking to me about my band without knowing that it's my band. (laughs) Right. Uh, So maybe I'm not doing a good enough job of of building that bridge. That's something I can maybe work on.
0: That also, there is kind of a tension there, I think. And I've experienced it myself of being like, do I, you know, I feel like being a, a writer about music and then putting out music, it's kind of like putting your neck on the line. Like it's like, you know, if you're critiquing other people's bands and then suddenly like you have your own music there too, it's. You're kind of more accountable to people being like, well, does this person actually know what the fuck they're talking about? Let me like listen to their tunes and find out. But it also is kind of like which which side of the fence do you ultimately feel like you sit on? you know, I, I get the sense that you see yourself more as a musician first.
1: Yes. Um, and this is also why I don't do reviews. I, I did mm-hmm. reviews for a little bit when I first started. I was writing for another website called Antihero and I did some reviews for them, but eventually, I started having the same feelings that you're describing. And I felt, well, it doesn't really seem fair for me to apply a critical eye to somebody's work while, on the other hand, pushing my own work out there. And I never, I never wrote uh, reviews of things I didn't enjoy listening to. I understand that there are legitimate reasons for doing that. They are just not reasons I wish to personally pursue. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to spend time thinking about something and digesting it, I want to have a good time. Uh, so, yeah, eventually I I realized, hey, these premieres are kind of a thing. And that's a way that I can both platform bands that I think are awesome and also tell everyone how good they are without the obligation of being a critic.
0: So right. that's kind of
1: how I like settled into that niche. And that allowed me to feel more ethically good about being a music writer and also putting music out but to answer your question uh yeah i feel like i am i see myself more as a musician who also writes about music too
0: Mm -hmm. totally yeah i I think that like that balance finding a way to like coexist and to not because there are some like ethical issues that could crop up there you know conflicts of interest and and whatnot so I think it's important to set up those kind of rules for yourself about how to to navigate those two worlds. So I really like respect your dedication to like that particular style of of writing about music.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, and I think it also, it achieves what I was looking to do from the very beginning, which is put underloved, let's say, or um, emerging bands in a position where more people can find out how cool they are Mm-hmm. And that that's sort of been my my aim the whole time. It's why like when it's year end time, I try not to put big big names on my list, even if they put out great records. Because you can if you can't find twenty awesome records by smaller bands, then you're lazy, basically.
0: What what do you think is your like focus? Do you have like a particular style of music or particular subgenres or scenes that you want to promote in specific? Uh, Well,
1: I try, but don't always succeed in finding bands that are not from North America or Western Europe. Mm -hmm. This was something we talked about all the time in the Shanghai scene, how you're essentially doing it as a hobby there because it's not going to get anywhere else. There's just not the level of international attention on it. And that's why I think sites like Unite Asia are so valuable. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's run by this dude, Riz Faruqi, out of Hong Kong. He's in a bunch of hardcore bands. But he created it to for this same reason. Asia is full of amazing heavy bands, and they need more attention because they're just as good, if not better, than the bands that are getting covered from the Western world. Mm-hmm. So I don't always succeed. I don't always put in the effort to like really look hard, but it's always in my head something i'm trying to do
0: kind of like zooming in on that Shanghai scene you mentioned that it's like super transient and that like artists or bands don't last for a particularly long time are there any other like major differences that you've noticed between like the sort of like western heavy music scene and the Shanghai scene
1: uh yeah i think because live music in Shanghai in general is not very big it's there's it's like a city of 20 million people but the live music thing has always been more niche. Uh, clubs are huge. If you're a producer, mm. if you're a DJ, that's a whole new world. And you will do excellently. The Shanghai scene wasn't even splintered by genre. It was just the live band scene. And you would have mm. bills of all sorts of genres all the time because we were all friends. And one person would just book a night and then see, see who else is free. And... uh just, there aren't enough active bands to support like this is the Shanghai death metal scene and this is the Shanghai hardcore scene. No, there'd be like three hardcore bands, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so ev- everyone <laughs> just works together.
0: Did that sort of crossover also inflect the genre and like the style of music that would these bands were playing? Like would genres like fuse more often because of these kind of bills?
1: I don't know if it was due to that nature or just more due to like people trying stuff because there wasn't Mm -hmm. there wasn't ever nobody had any dreams of like being picked up by a big label because they're just not looking there Mm -hmm. right especially not uh if you're uh, a bunch of foreigners like that's not a story now sick chinese bands that really burns me when they're not getting that next level of support but you know uh, and every once in a while, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, Duck Fight Goose went to South by Southwest. Yeah, because because there was nothing on the line, there was no no harm in being weird.
0: Were these bands like touring around China outside of Shanghai as well? Was there as much of a, like a touring scene or was it mostly like local shows?
1: Uh, a little bit of both. You would book like maybe at least as as we did it. It wouldn't be so much of a tour as like because everyone's mm. working too. Mm-hmm. Right, you, you need to live there on a work visa and a company has to give that to you. So there there was nobody who was really in, in a band first and just like bumming around, unless they're a professional musician. But even so, they're playing like corporate gigs and hotels and, and stuff like that. So what you would usually do is on a weekend, pick, let's say, two relatively close cities and do one on a Friday night and one on a Saturday night.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so China is all trains. The trains always run on time too. Planes are always late. So you travel by train and, you know, like Chengdu and Chongqing would be like a good pair. Or if you went to Beijing, Beijing has enough clubs where you would do maybe two shows in Beijing.
0: That's interesting. And so like, if you're taking trains, that must mean you're backlining a lot more than you would if you were driving around.
1: You know, another really cool thing about playing in China is that clubs all have their own backline. Mm hmm. Nobody brings their own drums. No one's carting amps around. It might not be the best stuff in the world, but they will have a drum kit. And they will have you know at least one guitar amp. So you just have to bring your instruments. I had my cymbals there, and I brought my snare drum over. But most of the time, I wouldn't even bring my snare. I would just truck my cymbals around.
0: I feel like New York is kind of like that, but that is a... a a problem that I've seen. Like when I lived in Chicago, like the amount of like gear schlepping that needed to be done compared to living in New York was like so annoying. Yeah. But
1: it massively lowers. I think the startup cost or the barrier of entry to having a band mm -hmm. and doing things like that, because the practice rooms all have gear, the clubs and the venues all have gear. All you have to do is show up with your actual instrument.
0: Yeah. That's you're kind of describing this like really interesting situation that where there's like a low barrier to entry but also this kind of like acceptance of that music would not it, it feels like this would promote a kind of lack of careerism in artists you know where instead of thinking like i'm gonna blow up there's this sense of like i'm doing it because i love it so there's almost this like and correct me if i'm wrong but it, it seems to me like there's this kind of like higher level of pure interest in the music itself compared to the like western rock and roll world i
1: don't i don't know if i would say a higher level i'm also not that experienced with how western music scenes work Mm -hmm. but your original point is absolutely correct because nobody had any delusions of being you know the next whatever big name is in their genre it's it's all, you know, everyone's losing money. You put out a record, you're printing those CDs. You're not going to sell them all. It's just like, no way. You're just mm-hmm. doing it because it's cool to have a record that has your name on it. So it was. it's all like, how much money are you planning to lose? <laughs> and how much time do you want to put into this? But you're going to have a lot of fun.
0: And so when did you start working with Xander?
1: Uh, so that would have been... Maybe 2015 or 2016. I knew Xander through music. Uh, he was an active guitarist and he was a sound engineer. So he would do sound for shows and also like mix people's records.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: a uh, great new band tip. If you can have a bandmate who knows how to mix and do like production, you're going to save a ton of cash. So my wife and I had gotten married and her, her parents, you know, put on like a big dinner with like all the extended family. So I brought him, so I could have like a buddy there. And so during the the dinner, we're sitting next to each other, and I was telling him, you know, like I really, I really want to do this black metal project that's just like kicking around in my head because I had that uh, brutal death band, he had a a melodic death metal band, so we're both doing like this different kinds of death metal, but still death metal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he's gonna get mad at me for telling this. So he goes, he goes, oh, black metal. it's so simple, you know, I could write a black metal record in a week. So I was like, yeah, well do it then, you know, (laughs) and I'll do the vocals and I'll I'll do the drums. And then, you know, like two years later, we had these songs.
0: (laughs) I love that story, that's so great. (laughs) Do you feel like having that maybe like non-black metal perspective helped shape maybe a different take on the genre when the two of you started working on it?
1: Certainly. He wasn't coming from it from that perspective either. So I think from his writing point of view, he is channeling what he might usually be doing through black metal tools. And I'd be sending him bands all the time, like usually not as explicitly as steal the intro of Wretched of, of wisdom. More just like, Hey, this record just came out, it's really cool. You know, I, I like how they do A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. See see if you can vibe on that. Yeah, so it's just really a, a hodgepodge process. I don't know where what his process is like. I don't know how he comes up with ideas. I know he writes on Guitar Pro. He doesn't write on his guitar.
0: Yeah, that, that's kind of an interesting parallel to the fact that the drums are programmed, too. Like, you're, you know, clearly if you're playing, you know, Mike Portnoy-level shit, you can rip through these on a live kit. But on the record, well, it's it's a programmed I'm not, drum sound instead.
1: I'm I'm not playing Mike Portnoy drums anymore. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that was like 15 years ago. Gotcha. I'm certainly way out of I mean, I haven't played drums in years. So I also was never good at playing to a metronome. I never wanted to practice doing that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so there, there's no way I could sit down and track like a seven minute black metal song. Perfectly, just impossible.
0: So was the decision to go with program drums like an aesthetic choice or was that like a practical thing?
1: Well, it was kind of both. We, we realized the cost of getting someone to record drums at a level of quality that Sander would be happy working with would be high. And this was before we had band money. You know, we hadn't mm-hmm. sold anything. I also wanted to write the drum parts myself because I could hear them in my head even if I couldn't physically perform them. So, he was like, "Just program them. I'll make them sound good. It'll be fine." So, we just did it that way.
0: I do feel like your parts feel way more like realistic than a lot of like guitarists programming drum parts for example. You know, like a band like Mirror Throne that I think have like kind of a similar... Well, that's like a one-person band. But the drums on those records are fucking insane. Like, they're impossible to play live. Just like, you know, blasting on two different cymbals at once while also having the snare going and shit like that. So it must help to have, like, some more practical knowledge of the kit when you do take it to the programmed space.
1: I think so. Although... Uh, there's one band I really love called Invalids. They're like a, almost like a tech emo band. If you like, <laughs> okay. if you like, like uh, American football, you would, you would be into them. But up until their most recent record, it's all programmed drums, and the, the main guy is a guitarist. But his drums are also very playable. So one of my governing rules is always, can a human do it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It might be a human who's an excellent drummer, but is it physically possible for a four-limbed person to pull this off? And I'll never want to write anything that can't be done that way. So I think, yeah, if you're if you're not familiar with how the drums work and just what is physically possible, that could lead to the problem you're describing, where you're almost like over programming without thinking like, I still want to create the illusion that a person is doing this. Maybe you don't. I mean, you take like author and Punisher or something. That guy doesn't want it to sound human at all, right? Mm-hmm. But I think in most cases where bands are using programmed drums, they're using them out of necessity because it's cheaper and you don't have to worry about finding a a place to record drums well and so on.
0: Have you ever thought about pushing more into uh, like quote unquote unrealistic drum sounds? Because I feel like if you have the option to not be tied down to a physical drum set in terms of getting your sounds, you also open the door to much more abstract types of percussion
1: I would actually rather do the opposite. For Mm -hmm. our next record, I want to at least really try to find someone to play the drums. Like, it would save me the very tedious effort of having to program every single note, and I could just send out sketches of the parts and then trust Mm -hmm. that guy to embellish them with fills and and everything else. Because I hate programming drums. It's boring as shit. (laughs) I, I hate it so much, but it has to be done and I can't do it at a level where I'll hate how it sounds, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Right. If you're going to do it, you have to take it seriously and that requires a lot of time.
1: Yeah. And I think even, yeah, so the, the first rule is can a human do it? And secondly, I hate when I'm listening to something and I can tell that they're just copy pasting the same fill every four bars that drives me up a wall. So yeah. I'll, have, I'll have all the beats and I'll go through it and in my head, you know the drummer that lives in my head will do a flourish or a flare or a fill and I'll stop, transcribe what was just played by my head drummer and then that goes into the, the song. So mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. just constant stopping and starting and deciphering like what did I just play mentally. But on Guitar Pro, I don't even use Guitar Pro. I use Tux Guitar, which is like a, a free knockoff version for Mac. Mm -hmm. our first our first record i did all the drums with a pirated version of a guitar pro 5 which would crash every time i attempted to paste more than two bars at once so that made just like laying out basic beats (laughs) even more annoying right because i have to paste them two bars at a time
0: jesus yeah
1: so you know pay for your software
0: (laughs) so now you're working on another record but you're in yet another new country, uh, you're in the Czech Republic now. When did you, when did you move there? I've been here
1: about four years. Yeah, I've been in Shanghai for almost nine years and just started getting itchy feet.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, of course, I miss it a lot and like would love to be there, especially because Czech Republic has been uniquely disastrous in handling COVID, and Shanghai has been that normal life for like the past year.
0: Mm-hmm. What when you arrived, did you? clued into the music scene there at all? Or were, did you feel like you were still kind of connected more to the, the Shanghai scene?
1: I still feel more connected to the Shanghai scene. I never really clicked with it here. I went out a little bit when we first started. I, I met with a couple people. I wasn't able to find a project to join. And just kind of dwindled on. I, I never really felt hooked in or engaged the way I did back when I moved to Shanghai, I mean, I, I don't want to think it's because I'm older, because, like, I, let's say, I think if I moved to New York tomorrow, I would easily be able to figure out something to do. Mm-hmm. So I don't know; it's it's never really clicked for us here, and that's one of the big reasons why we've been trying to move. I mean, it's it's weird. Had had COVID not happened, we wouldn't be living here anymore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it did, so here we are.
0: What, what was your inability to click? based on the kind of music that was being played or do you think there's some like other reasons what what's your what's your take on like the Czech music scene
1: i don't really know enough about it to provide you with an informed take gotcha we went to a a couple of shows and they were cool i mean there are cool bands there was one that i really wanted to join they're called heaving earth my friend referred me because he told me they were looking for a vocalist and then I got in touch with them, they're like, No, we found one. What we need is a drummer, and I didn't have any of my stuff. Mm-hmm. But they're really cool. I like them. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to find work at the same time. We were we were both navigating, just being in a weird place. I didn't I didn't really make the effort, which, you know, maybe is a good or bad thing, but I didn't. And I also had Cosmogira going on, so Right. It wasn't like I was completely unfulfilled musically. I was like, well, I have this thing already and I haven't found anything good with like my baby steps locally, so maybe I'll just focus on the internet world.
0: Yeah, I, it's interesting like how you know, you've got two different band members in two different parts of the world, but it feels still like there is the band unified on the internet in some way, you know? Like I've been thinking a lot about how the internet allows for this kind of like cosmopolitan music scene to exist outside of the local world, mm-hmm. you know? So do you feel like Cosmo Gear is more of like a band that is like native to the internet now than native to a particular place on planet Earth?
1: Well, I, I don't think so because we, we still met each other in person, right? We were mm-hmm. friends in, in real life for a number of years and the project started in shanghai although we never we never like jammed it's always been writing on the computer and sending stuff back and forth like our our first meeting as a band was not in a practice room it was like xander coming to my place and me showing him black metal bands i like Mm -hmm. like he's never sat down with a guitar and been like check this out it's always been digital but I feel like that's not weird now. Like when Postal Service came out, you know, that was such a gimmick that they named their band after it, right? Right. But now it's it's run of the mill.
0: Has writing about other bands and promoting other underground artists, has that had any kind of impact on the way that you write your own music? Like has that crossed over in any way?
1: I don't really, I don't really understand how, I don't think so. I don't, I don't see how it would, because we still have our little way of doing things and yeah I just I don't I don't really understand how the connection would be there in another situation I just can't see how that would happen you know sure. what I mean
0: yeah I guess like from my perspective and coming more from like the critic and like review world which is like more of what I focused on when I was doing that f- full-time quote-unquote um, <laughs> yeah. uh was like the experience of like deep diving into someone else's music and kind of like picking it apart and seeing how it worked, I think did help me have like a bit more of a fine tuned architectural ear when building my own stuff. Oh
1: yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. And I would say so like, uh, even though the music still starts with Xander, right. He'll send me like a bunch of riffs that belong together, but then I'll be going through them and, thinking which one should be a good chorus. This one sounds kind of like a good main riff, but then I'll maybe add some new stuff to it. Certainly it's helped by just exposing me to more bands that I can steal from. I think that's a (laughs) a huge bonus. Just seeing what, what do I respond to really strongly and then how can I inject that into what we're doing.
0: So what are you responding strongly to these days as a listener and writer?
1: Okay, well, let me bring up my ongoing list so okay without even looking at it this yesterday was one of the biggest release days i think we've had in the heavy music world all year the new putres scene is just a brain boggle right
0: yeah another uh, band with great program drums
1: oh my god yeah And so I I was telling him about that And just just asking how that happened So Marie is the one who does all the drum programming And I am stunned Because she is another person Who I think writes very human programmed drums Mm -hmm. So I really like listening to their music To see how she's writing the drums Again, as you said, analyzing it Breaking it down What is Marie doing here that works really well What kind of fills is she using A little bit more straightforward death metal Celestial Sanctuary was huge Mm-hmm. And then I really liked uh, the blindfolded and led to the woods. Their last record I really loved as well. So this is just them kind of going more in that crazy direction. And then the fourth one that dropped yesterday, I don't know if it's era or era, A A R A. They're a black metal band. Okay. I don't know how to pronounce it correctly.
0: I've I, this is new to me, so I can't help you.
1: <laughs> okay, so th- their record last year was like number four or five on my list. Okay it's like Baroque and black metal. Like you would, you could imagine it in like gilded halls with like lots of tapestries and like fancy people with, you know, aristocratic titles.
0: Sure. Okay. Um,
1: Yeah. It's like, you know, string chamber black metal. I I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. So they, they put out another new one yesterday too.
0: Fuck. Yeah. Um, any other like big releases from earlier in the year that you've been digging? Or not big as in like popular, but like ones that hold a lot of space in your mind.
1: Yeah, uh, definitely the Necropanther EP. I did a big interview with them because I love the band. And then uh, the new one from all these bands, Dune, but the, the U is a V. I'm pretty sure it's Dune okay. though, because they write about like the books. Yeah, so the band name is Dune, but the U is a V. So it's like Divney. Gotcha. but I'm pretty sure it's Dune because their Bandcamp is Songs of Arrakis at bandcamp.com.
0: Definitely Dune then. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: so th- those are some of the big ones in, in like the past couple weeks.
0: Cool. You're working on a new record, you said. Uh,
1: almost. Uh, we're doing a split. Uh-huh. So only, only three songs.
0: Where do you want to take the Cosmo Gear sound going forward? from the, the last record to this split?
1: So we have three songs on it, and I think each of them branches off from our album in its own kind of way. We have one that is sort of taking the more, let's say, Jeff y warm hug flavor and sure. pushing that to its extreme. And then one of them is kind of more of the... Well, rather than the, the the other one on the opposite is... It's our first foray into odd times, and it's super aggressive and mm-hmm. and harsh. So that one's going in, in that extreme, and then there's one that's kind of in the middle.
0: Gotcha. Uh, do you plan on doing another full-length after the split?
1: We both really want to. So, you know, wanting is... is of course, different than doing, but absolutely. We both really like working on this project and I, I certainly want to do more. I don't want to ever write about Bloodborne again. I'm tapped out. So <laughs> no more concepts for the next one, <laughs> but certainly uh, we, we both really want to keep it going.
0: Fuck. Yeah. Well, I actually kind of have to split cause I've got another I'm like double booking myself today. So okay. thank you so much for taking the time out. This was awesome. I mm-hmm. really loved this conversation.
1: Yeah, man. Thank you for doing this with me. I thought it was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you again for listening. And thank you, Yvonne, for joining me. You can listen to CosmoGear at CosmoGear.BandCamp.com I've included links to the bands Yvonne gave props to in the interview and the show notes, as well as the link to my own band camp. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a good rating and review, or send it to a friend that you think would dig it. If you'd like to reach me, you can email me at lamniformsband at gmail.com.